Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Sita Lakshmi, Associate Epidemiologist from Tampa General Hospital and Assistant Professor at University of South Florida. We're going to talk briefly about COVID-19. Of course, the information on this presentation changes so rapidly and daily. It's a moving target. Um, and slides that have a red star marked on the right upper hand corner are subject to change as more information becomes available. So I want to take a minute to acknowledge why we're doing this presentation. I believe it's important um, to understand the nature of coronavirus, given the fact that we are facing the new SARS coronavirus too. Um, given the unpredictable course of COVID-19, it's important for healthcare professionals to be familiar with coronaviruses in general and SARS coronavirus too specifically, so they can better protect themselves and their communities. Again, as I mentioned previously, it's a moving target. The information is subject to rapid change and um, the slides that have an asterisk with red on the right upper hand corner um, are subject to change as daily information becomes available. So let's um, talk briefly about what are coronaviruses. Here you're seeing an electron micrograph picture of a coronavirus. Coronaviruses are a group of viruses that have a halo or crown, which, which is what corona stands for. The crown-like appearance when you view, view it under electron microscopy. They are a family of RNA viruses that predominantly infect mammals and birds. Currently, there are seven known strains that are known to infect humans, and most of them circulate in the winter months causing common cold or upper respiratory tract infections. The three strains that we have come to know very well for their fatality of illnesses or severity of illnesses um, our SARS coronavirus, MERS-CoV, and as things evolve, the SARS coronavirus 2, previously called the novel uh, coronavirus. So the family of coronaviridae has alpha and beta coronaviruses, which predominantly infect mammals and cause a severe respiratory or GI illness. Now, the clinical range of symptoms might vary, but they have the capability of causing severe illnesses. The gamma and delta coronaviruses infect birds mostly, and sometimes can also infect mammals. The next slide you see here shows you kind of the range of infection across species, right? So as you can see in the first um, second column rather here, the natural hosts generally tend to be bats or rodents. And then there is usually an intermediate host, which is often a domesticated animal. And then finally, the species jump that happens into the human host. And there are, here are examples of different coronaviruses that are capable perhaps of doing that. A five-year longitudinal study revealed the coexistence of highly diverse SARS-related coronaviruses in bat populations in one cave in Yunnan province, China. I think this is an important fact to understand that these coronaviruses 
um, that are present in the bats need to mutate to cause the species jump to happen and we'll learn a little bit more about it in the next coming up slides. This slide looks very complicated and busy but it, it really is not. So the, the, the main point I want you to notice here is this S segment of the RNA, right? So here's your 5 prime N, your 3 prime N, and here's your S segment. The S segment is important because it codes for the receptor binding domain. Remember, the receptor binding domain gives this RNA virus the ability to bind to its host, whether it's the bat, the domesticated animals, or human beings. This is an important part of the virus's ability to thrive in its host. Since this um, part of the, the virus has an ability to mutate, it makes it highly likely to be able to um, make those mutations, some which might not be helpful, but some which are helpful in um, acculturating to its host or adapting to its host. So let's talk about um, briefly about the pathophysiology of the SARS coronavirus 2. So this is a picture of the respiratory epithelium and you can see the ciliated columnar epithelial cells here. The important part to focus on is that the genome of SARS coronavirus 2 is identical about 75 to 80% to that of SARS and binds to the same receptor as of SARS. So that's a human angiotensin converting en enzyme receptor. Knowing the genome allows for us to be able to um, have rapid tests such as reverse transcriptase PCR and targeted antiviral therapies. And this is the slide that, this is the part that talks a little bit about the cytopathic effects. The binding of the SARS coronavirus 2 to the ciliated columnar epithelial cells through the human angiotensin converting enzyme receptor right here will lead to a cytopathic effect and within 96 hours of inoculation you notice that the cilia stopped beating which is one of the primary innate defense mechanism of the human respiratory epithelium. This is a picture of the wet market in China. And I, I'm sure a lot of you have heard about the wet markets being the source of the outbreak and there are a few other theories behind, you know, what are the possibilities are there. But I wanted you to kind of get a visual sense of what a wet market looks like. So as you're aware, the coronaviruses infect birds and the mammals. So you can see there is also bird droppings on, on this person's shirt here as well. So there is a lot of interaction between these, between um, close interaction between species and you can see how that could facilitate uh, interspecies jump. There have been a few issues in understanding um, the novel um, disease emergence from a, from a pandemic perspective. So in the past three years, the United States has closed the Office of Pandemic Response. 
we've decreased our outreach uh, from 49 to 10 countries and ended the PREDICT program, which identified 1,000 new viruses and trained more than 5,000 epi epidemiological responders. The other big issue in us effectively understanding the ongoing um, epidemic is fake news. You can see multiple examples on this slide where people are talking about possibility of bioweapons and um, being used intentionally and stuff. So there's a lot of misinformation that is spread out there that makes it hard to communicate uh, the actual uh, severity, the actual uh, methods for prevention. So technology and outbreaks. So I believe there is the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to technology and outbreaks. Um, so I want to focus on the, some of the fake news aspect that we already um, saw in the previous slides. So this truly is the bad part of technology when it when you know something that looks very authentic and then it says here professor warns new coronavirus has the same kill rate as a spanish flu which we know is not true um, the kill rate for the for the sars coronavirus 2 is much lower than that of spanish flu um, so definitely misleading and this was breaking news cocaine kills coronavirus you know it just people come up with interesting stuff um, this is a good part, I believe, for having um, somebody that can actually take into account an algorithm through artificial intelligence to predict an outbreak faster. And this is very interesting. This is a company called Blue Dot that used an artificial intelligence algorithm and they identified COVID-19 outbreak about a week ahead of time. It also uh, works with tabulating news, travel, social media, hospital visits, pharma sales to predict disease outbreaks. So that, um, that lead time you get in um, knowing about an epidemic gives you a much faster advantage um, in containment efforts and prevention efforts. So this would be really interesting as the future evolves to see how artificial intelligent algorithms can help us predict outbreaks faster. Now, this is the updated slide as of yesterday. Um, on the right side, you see the epidemiological curve that is from the Johns Hopkins database. Uh, it's a very good database and it updates very frequently on the number of cases, including worldwide number of cases. On the left here, you can see there is a chronology of events, but the highlight that really I wanted you to focus is how the number of cases have exponentially moved up. And you can see here some of the, at this point where you see this upward trend is where the change in definition of the coronavirus um, infection happened. So there was clinical definition included with the lab definition. So you can definitely see an uptrend, but when you also break it down by individual number of uh, cases and the percent increase, there is still quite a bit of actual lab confirmed cases in this uptrend as well. It's, um, um, it's always helpful to see the shape of the epidemiological curve, right? This is the curve and it's nice to see it um, flattening out, but this is too early to predict what is going to happen next, uh, especially with the international cases that are being reported every day.
So often SARS coronavirus 2 is compared to influenza. I wanted to give you some juxtaposition of numbers. This is data um, as of yesterday comparing the flu season this year, the toll it has taken uh, com compared, you know, compared to the coronavirus infections, um, the novel coronavirus infections. So here you see the number of patients with influenza approximated to be about 41 million, number of doctor visit about 19 million, hospitalized patients about 500,000, and deaths so far in the season attributed to influenza alone, 41,000. So this is a team of Chinese researchers that helped decode the SARS coronavirus 2 genome. As you can see, it was such an early phase of the disease. They were, you know, were not aware of all the modes of transmission at that time. So as you can see, this person is lacking eyewear and now we know we need to wear eye protection and we'll go over some of the personal protective equipment in the next slides. So let's talk about transmission. We know a lot of common respiratory viruses, including coronaviruses, are transmitted by droplets. So that's why you'll see droplet precautions on the patients that are being investigated. There is also contact, right? So droplets and contact uh, that is also known mode of transmission. The next one, I put it here as gastrointestinal. We don't know to what extent this is actually happening. However, if you understand the pathophysiology of coronaviruses, how they affect human beings, there is shedding of coronaviruses in the stool. Whether these particles are infectious, non-infectious, we don't know yet. Um, asymptomatic persons can transmit infection and that's um, not uncommon. We know uh, people with um, flu can transmit the infection uh, when they're asymptomatic. So, um, this is not unusual, however, it does make it challenging for, from a containment perspective when um, asymptomatic persons can transmit infection. Now there is a question about can this be transmitted as airborne? Now airborne, generally you hear about it for tuberculosis, measles, um, where the infectious particles are much smaller, they remain suspended in air for a much longer period of time. There is amount of controversy surrounding airborne transmission uh, and you can see this gentleman um, in the plane is wrapped completely probably believes in airborne transmission um, just like my colleague Dr. Sinnott and we go back and forth about it uh, but as of things stand now there's a lot of unknowns and all your personal protection and infection control policies will include um, airborne prevention as well until we learn more about the virus. So symptoms, um, usually a dry cough followed by a fever, all your upper respiratory sac, uh, tract symptoms. Um, most recover, but about 2.5 to 3% can progress into pneumonia. Um, and I'll show you in the next coming up few slides about the case fatality rate. So a few more things about epidemiology for the SARS coronavirus 2 is the number R naught. This number has been used a lot in the media, common articles, newspapers. So essentially what R0 means is that if one person is infected, how many more people will that one person infect? So for example, if an R0 is one, 
one person will infect another one person, right? So if an R0 is 2, that one person is going to infect two other people. So the R0 for this, corona, um, this COVID-19 disease is 2.2. The doubling time is 6.7 days, which basically means that in 6.7 days, if you had 100 infections to start with, you're going to have 200 infections at the end of those 6.7 days. Mean age, around 59 years. Deaths often happen in people with comorbidities. And the ones that are studied, and we'll look over it in the next few slides, is hypertension, cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, underlying immunocompromising conditions, and underlying airway disease. So far, recovery seems to be complete in survivors. Now this is a busy slide. Um, however, I wanted, you, I wanted to show you um, how the age, with the progression of age, you can see the case fatality numbers progress, right? From 0.2 to 14, if you're greater than, close to 15 almost, if you're greater than 80. Um, and that's important to understand that older adults are much higher uh, rate of death from the, uh, from the SARS coronavirus 2. And look at the occupation aspect of it as well. Yes, there is a male to female preponderance, male case fatality 2.8 and female 1.7. And you can look at the occupation aspect of it and you can see healthcare workers, the case fatality rate is 0.3. Um, versus other categories and I think that's important to point out that that perhaps is a reflection of use of personal protective equipment and infection control measures to help decrease nosocomial transmission. Again this is a study that came out of China CDC over the past week and um, the, the great thing about this study is has greater than 70,000 um, cases that were included in the study. So this is the largest study to date we have that kind of gives us a window into the epidemiology of COVID-19. This slide also focuses on the age aspect of it, but I think gives you a very um, kind of a clean idea in terms of how the number of cases go up you see between 30 to 79. So you can see that in younger children, not as many cases, which is excellent news, right? The predominantly affected group seems to be 30 to 79 years of age. We'll talk a little bit about healthcare workers. And this has been a major concern given the amount of infectivity of the virus. So to date, we have greater than 1,700 healthcare workers that are infected and five dead. And um, you've seen the picture of this physician who succumbed to the disease and has been on national news. So it's very important for us to understand um, the basic infection prevention aspects and how we can protect ourselves and our communities from COVID-19. It's important to follow meticulous personal protection. Uh, make sure you wear your gowns, gloves, mask, and eye protection. Um, make sure you're donning and doffing properly. Um, and th this is very important and part of something that all frontline healthcare providers should understand and know. So 
just a lighter moment. You know what goes great with coronavirus? Lyme disease, right? Um, well, jokes aside, um, what does go well with COVID-19, the season right now, is that of other respiratory viruses, including influenza. So how can you protect yourself, right? So definitely, definitely make sure you have um, gotten flu shot. There are a few other non-pharmaceutical interventions that are out there. Uh, we looked at the evidence, always hand washing, hand washing, hand washing, right? Hand washing um, with soap and water, hand washing with alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Um, it's very important that you do, you practice hand washing. And face masks, there have been a lot of questions around face masks, use of face masks. If used properly, yes, they can be protective. In a healthcare setting, you have to use a face mask. Um, it's an N95 uh, face mask. Make sure you have, you're properly fit tested. Um, so it's absolutely important. And then surface cleaning. Um, the range of survival of the SARS coronavirus 2 lasts anywhere between seven to nine days on the surfaces, depending on what type of surfaces, exposure to sunlight, many other factors. Um, so surface cleaning is also part of the uh, protect, protection plan. This is a picture of a co-pilot that um, was on the plane that um, was part of the mission to evacuate diplomats from the from Hubei province and as you can see he's definitely wearing his personal protective equipment. It was early on in the epidemic uh, there were a lot of unknowns but definitely taking proper precautions. This is a picture of people standing in line uh, in China trying to get the masks. So this is part of the surge capacity planning right so if you have um, an epidemic how it affects supply demand and the changes that come with it. So the future is unpredictable. We expect more person-to-person -person spread. Um, pandemic, basically pandemic is an epidemic on two or more continents versus it being contained. As of things stand today, um, there, there are many more cases reported out of Italy, South Korea, so we have to stay tuned and see how this pans out. Um, but definitely uh, it's concerning the amount of spread that has happened over a short period of time. And despite a lot of aggressive measures, um, such as quarantining entire pro provinces. So expect some, some more cases in the U.S. and Florida. We definitely urge you to follow reliable source of information, such as the CDC, Johns Hopkins, and the avian flu diaries. And definitely avoid fake news. Um, and the hysteria associated with it. Again, we want to emphasize, protect yourself, wear the gown, gloves, mask, and eye protection, um, and make sure you feel comfortable donning and doffing your personal protective equipment um, as you provide care for these patients. So what institutions should consider in case of an epidemic? There are various um, thoughts and measures that have variable degree of successes, right? Workplace containment, so recommended. Of course, if you're sick, have a fever and a cough, please seek medical attention. Um, don't go to work. If you're exposed, quarantine yourself for 14 days. And then workplace measures that decreases the amount of crowding of people in one place, teleworking. I think Hong Kong has implemented a lot of these uh, staggering shifts, loosening sick leave policy, decreasing travel. 
And then school measures which are variably effective are excluding sick students, decreasing class mixing, closure during an epidemic, and definitely improving hand hygiene and hand san uh, providing hand sanitizer stations. So it's an interesting perspective, right? Is, is the glass half full or half empty? Uh, it's important to recognize that most of the illnesses, including the study that came out of China CDC, show that majority of the illnesses are mild and most patients fully recover. Um, it's uh, definitely um, great news that children have a lower risk of severe illnesses and the virus does not appear to pass from mother to fetus or cause any birth defects. So this is a great um, quote from Sir William Osler, medicine is a science of uncertainty and an art of probability. Um, these are very uncertain times. There's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen next, how much spread is going to happen, are we at the edge of a pandemic. However, it's probable that we have to be very prepared and we will likely see more cases and um, stay tuned to see how things progress. Thank you.